From Jerusalem, Israel, this is From the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel. Providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. Hi, I'm very, very pleased today to have a very special guest uh, to talk about a very special topic, the state of Israel, its economy, its social standing, and, and many other things in between. Today, my guest is Professor Dan Ben-David, who is the founder and president of the new independent, nonpartisan Shorish Institution for Socioeconomic Research and a senior faculty member of the Department of Public Policy at Tel Aviv University. Until recently, he served as the executive director of the Taub Center for Social Policy Studies. Dan received his Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago, my hometown, and specializes in macroeconomics, economic growth, and international trade. In recognition of his public impact, Dan was named, quote-unquote, Person of the Year by the Calculist newspaper in 2010 and was included among the 100 most influential people in Israel by Haaretz, uh, newspaper. Academically, Professor Ben David was ranked among the 1,000 most cited academic economists in the world. Welcome, Dan. How are you today? Very good. Glad to be here. Okay. I'm going to jump right into I have a lot of questions and uh, hope to have an interesting discussion. My first question is, Dan, in the last few years I've read books by Charles Murray and Robert Putnam, who are noted U.S. sociologists about the growing income slash opportunity gap in the wealthiest democracy in the world, namely the United States. In America, they seem to point out this trend began in the late 60s. When, when did it begin in Israel? It's really hard to say because the Israeli data uh, is, is, is actually still a work in progress. So the data that we have in the 60s only looked at uh, urban uh, employees, and, uh, and it, was a, it was a very limited sample uh, over the years, uh, the sample enlarged. So the best that we can say is that at least since the 70s, uh, income inequality in Israel has been increasing until the middle part of uh, last decade. And then uh, depending on whether you're looking at in gross incomes or net incomes, but in gross incomes, it started to fall. The middle part of last decade or the beginning of last decade was the Intifada. That was our major recession. So we, we peaked then and it's, it's receded a bit since then. However, uh, when you look at it in disposable incomes, in other words, after the government uh, uh, takes taxes and gives welfare benefits, uh, income inequality has been rising. It's, it's, it's stabilized a bit in recent years, but in fact, we've actually overtaken the United States as the least equal uh, economy in the developed world uh, in recent years. Okay, so that leads me to, I'm going to describe a scene uh, from the mid-80s in Jerusalem. It's a summer evening in Beit Karim. That's where I lived at the time. I'm out for a stroll. No one seems to have air conditioning in those days, so everyone's windows are open. There's only one television station, and it is time for the Mabat news program. As I walk down the street, I'm actually able to listen to the news, because every home is listening to the only thing that is available on TV, namely Mabat. 
Today, just 30 years later, that experience could never be repeated. We have so many choices, and our shared daily experiences seem to be diminishing. Is economics part of what I'm observing? Sure. Uh, first of all, the very fact that all the windows are open because no one is air conditioning also uh, tells you a little bit about the kind of country that we were once uh, and where we are today. We've, we've come a long ways uh, in these same apartments. Everyone now has a phone. In fact, they probably have a phone in their pocket, whereas uh, in the early 80s, late 70s, you could wait six or seven years to get a phone. So uh, we've, 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 yes, come a long, <laughs> we've come a long, long way since then, uh, much improvement. Uh, and in fact, we have a, a fantastic window of opportunity ahead of us because there are some very problematic dark clouds on the horizon, and that's that concerns us quite a bit uh, in terms of the long-run trajectories of Israel. They are uh, uh, quite problematic, but I'm sure we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. The marker has named you several times as one of the 100 most influential people in Israel. Your publishing of the annual report of the Taub Center for Social Policy Research in Israel always made headlines. How do you feel your influence has been felt by Israeli society? To be honest, uh, my colleagues and I are doing what we're doing for a very simple reason. Uh, we're concerned about the future of Israel, and, uh, and to, to take it to the most personal level possible, we want our kids to continue living in Israel. And the default right now is not a good one in, in the following sense. Uh, roughly half the children in Israel today are receiving a, a third-world education, and those kids are tend to be in, in, in the larger and the fastest-growing parts of the population. Uh, kids who are receiving a third-world education will not be able to support a first-world economy, only a third-world one. third-world economy can't support a first-world army in the neighborhood that we live in. That becomes an issue of national defense. Uh, we're going to have a major problem just simply surviving here. And uh, when you look at the situation today, and this is already going into your realm uh, in taxes. If you look at uh, our ability to, to pay for things today, um, we are already funding uh, a greater portion of our, our, uh, our income is coming from indirect taxes like value-added taxes and, and so on, which uh, are uh, considered regressive. They, they uh, hurt the, the poor more because a larger share of their income is going to taxes. So we're already at that point. So when you think about the future and the needs that we're going to have in the future, a considerable percentage of the population, a rising percentage of the population is going to need assistance on the one hand, and on the other hand will not be able to pay taxes. You go to income tax. Well, already today, uh, half the population pays no income tax. They don't reach the bottom rung of the income tax ladder while uh, 89% of all the income tax revenue in Israel comes from the top two deciles. So 20% are really footing the bill for uh, almost nine-tenths of the entire income. That's today. That's before the, the demography sets in. So we have some issues that we need to deal with because we have a window of opportunity. This connects with what you were talking about earlier. We have some of the best universities in the world. We are definitely the startup nation in, in some areas. Uh, but the knowledge that exists here has to reach all the children, pretty much has to reach them tomorrow, because when they grow up, we're going to have a major problem. Yes. Okay. That's certainly, you know, that's what I've read in your, your publications, and uh, th that gap, which I referred to 
you know, is something they're very is happening and has happened in the United States is something we're feeling here as well. Um, I, I can give you an, another example okay. of the gap, maybe from a different perspective, because generally when we talk about uh, gaps, we, we focus on income inequality and poverty, and, and the debate is, is actually a very one-sided debate in the sense that um, uh, either, either we have uh, the, what we call in Hebrew the chevrati types, or I guess in the English equivalent bleeding-heart liberals, mm-hmm. or on the other side the capitalists, those are only worried about the economic growth. Well, if you look at economic growth in Israel, put aside the issues of income inequality that we, we discussed earlier. If you look at e- economic growth, the underlying, the prime underlying determinant of economic growth in, in every country is called productivity. And when you look at Israel's productivity today, labor productivity, in other, in other words, the amount produced per hour, it is among the lowest in the OECD. All, all the relevant countries to Israel are, are way above us. We produce... Uh, roughly $37 an hour, uh, the average Israeli, compared to $67 in the U.S. Wow. Now, not only is it, is it very low, but when you look at the trend, since the mid-70s, until the mid-70s, we were actually catching up to the U.S. and the other developed countries. Since the mid-70s, the, the G7 countries have been pulling away uh, more and more from us. And uh, uh, the, the gap between the leading developed world countries and Israel has risen fourfold. And, and the question is why. I mean, if we have, uh, the, we are the startup nation, but that's only a part of Israel. And, and that part is phenomenal. It's cutting edge. In fact, it's moving the envelope. But there's another part of Israel. And that part of Israel isn't receiving either the tools or conditions to work in a modern economy. And that other part of Israel is growing bigger and bigger. Its share of the total is growing. It's just this huge weight on our shoulders. So it's not just an issue of we're doing someone favors by, by helping them get out of poverty and reducing income inequality. We need a lot more people. Uh, we need to include a lot more people in the economy simply because we're running on, on, on less and less of the cylinders and we're, we're falling further and further behind. In the final analysis, the, the burden is going to be such that many of our kids, the ones who are the most educated and most skilled, are not going to be able to bear it, and they're not going to remain here. And that has ominous implications for the future if we don't get our act together. Oh, it's, I definitely agree with you, and it, it, it is ominous. It is ominous, and, and it, it doesn't sound like it's that far away, uh, that situation you describe where people will... I mean, there's always been a tendency to opt for greener pastures, but I, I have found over the years in my own work that even Israelis who succeed abroad, uh, many of them want to come back. And uh, you know, I think they'd want to be in a place where their kids can get gainful employment, productive employment, and, and, and contribute. Well, I, think, I think one of the things that gives me hope, I mean, you're right. Israelis in general want to live in Israel. We feel this is family, this is home. And there's also a huge sense of purpose for most of us here. Um, and, and, and you can see in, in the demonstrations that we had, the social protests in 2011, 5% of the entire population, 400,000 people went out in the streets on one Saturday night to protest basically what's the tip of the iceberg. So my guess is that if they would know what the entire iceberg looks like, I think that we would have a lot more people out there and we'd get our act together and, and we'd fix it but we just need to get our act together. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because that is one of my questions about those demonstrations that took place in 2011 that, that echoed many of the issues that you write, write about. Um, 
those demonstrations obviously did peter out. Do you think Israelis reached the conclusion you can't, quote-unquote, fight City Hall? Or are politicians just simply insensitive to the issues that you raise and, and people went out in the streets to, you know, to scream about? I'm, I'm not so sure that they petered out. I think, I think probably the main problem is that for, for, for all of the trees, people have a difficulty seeing the forest. In other words, this is a country where we have a huge crisis every, every other day almost, and, and everything grabs our attention. And, and again, because we're, we, we're a, a good chunk of the population is seriously interested in what's going on here, we take everything to heart, and it's like a pinball machine. So we just jump from one thing to the other. It's hard to maintain focus. Uh, and it's also hard, even in, in the realm, of the socioeconomic realm, it's hard to distinguish what's important and what's not. I mean, if you think about a lot of the issues that have come up in recent years, ranging from corruption and crony capitalism uh, to, to the, the price of cottage cheese and the price of apartments, uh, it's just all over the place. And, and it's very hard to get people to understand what are the real, uh, the root issues, the primary, that's why we called our institution the Shoalish Institution. We, we look at the root, the Shoalish of the problem, and that's our whole point over the past year since we created Shoish, is to try and move the, the dialogue and, and, and the discourse and, and, and the final analysis, our politicians and our policymakers in that direction. I think the fact that you have uh, a party by Lapid or by Kahlon means that, uh, that uh, the economic issues haven't petered out. I don't think they've, they've, they've dissipated entirely. I think that what happened is that uh, while in the U.S. Uh, James Carville is saying it's the economy stupid was the relevant expression, here it's national security stupid. That's the only thing that, that ultimately matters. What we, ha what we need to do is convince people that this is national security, the issues that we're talking about, because otherwise all the rest doesn't matter, because our best and brightest, a good chunk of them won't be here. Without them, this is not going to be a country that's going to be able to defend itself. So... These are things you've been educating us about, writing about, telling us about, uh, but you didn't make a move. You set up, as you call the, the show, it's called the Shoresh Institution for Socioeconomic Research. Um, and I like that, that it's the root, the root cause. Uh, but can you spend a few minutes just telling us about why, what makes it unique and, and why you chose to set something up new? Sure. Um... Basically, uh, research, uh, it, policy research institutes are, are, are generally advocacy centers, either center-right, center-left, or far-right, far-left, or for the economy, or for oil companies. Or f they're always for something. And uh, what we try to do is, is basically take the university approach, where I do research on an issue. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the results are. Sometimes they're going to make one group happy. Sometimes they're going to make the other group happy. But the idea is to move basically the, 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 the public discourse and the policy making from uh, conventionalism, which is often wrong, to actual facts. And, and in this case, actual long-run facts so that we can start thinking about strategic issues rather than always putting out fires. We need to think about where does we want to go. This, I mean, think about... Uh, all the elections that you've seen here since, since you came to Israel, the elections are always about putting out fires. You, know, you never have a discussion here, well, what kind of a country do we actually want to have in 20, 30 years? Now, it's not really a discussion you have in other countries either, to be honest. I mean, we're not alone in that regard. 
we are in the toughest neighborhood in the entire world. So we have less uh, degrees of freedom to, to, to mess around with this issue. And, and we need to start having a discussion because only after you decide where you want to go can you decide what you need to do to get there. Otherwise, we're just uh, messing around. And, and our goal, and we took some of the top researchers from around Israel. From, I'm from Tel Aviv University, Eyal uh, Kimchi, a professor of economics at Hebrew University and some others, and basically the idea is uh, we feel we're, we, 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 we need to get the passengers and, and crew uh, to stop dealing with the rearrangement of, of, of chairs on the Titanic and start dealing with that big iceberg ahead because it's there, and uh, that's what hopefully makes us unique. I mean, we're trying to get a, you know, a glimpse of Israel from 30,000 feet that's both broader and deeper and easier to understand uh, than, than any other domestic analysis ever undertaken of Israel. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to, to have an ongoing and ringing wake-up call for all those who care about Israel inside the country and outside. Okay, so let me let me speak about perhaps one of those icebergs mm-hmm. that I think uh, many of us are aware of, which is the uh, integration of the Haredi population into the workforce. It, it seems to me that Yesh Atid made an attempt to get young Haredi males out of the yeshivot and into the workplace. Uh, well, they lost the election. I was going to say, where did they go wrong? Per your studies, is secular education the key to move this growing part of the population into the workforce? Well, I think... Uh, had their emphasis wrong. Um, it's, a, it's a lot tougher than what they were doing for the following reason. Israel is a small country, and small countries, regardless of whether it's Israel or Belgium or Denmark, small countries don't have the economies of scale to produce everything they need. Uh, and they don't have the economies of scale to, that, that will buy everything that they can produce to make it uh, economically feasible. Therefore, small countries trade... A, and have the international trade of small countries is, represents a much greater share of their GDP than big countries. In our case, uh, exports and imports each are roughly half of everything that we produce. In the U.S., it's, it's about an eighth to a tenth, depending on the year. So we have to understand what are the needs of our population in general to be able to compete in a modern economy, a modern, global, very competitive economy going forward. And while there are many lifestyles, uh, not just in Israel, abroad as well, there's only one economic market, and there are only one set of rules, basically, uh, and, and tools that you need. Uh, you need to know how to write. You need to know how to read. You need to know how to express yourself. More and more, you need to know English. There are some basic things that you need. And to deprive children of that means you're depriving them of an ability to, to succeed and to, to be able to work in such a, a marketplace. Uh, now, our education system today uh, in, in primary and secondary schools is, is, uh, has become one of the worst in the developed world. On one hand, we have one of the best set of universities in the world, but uh, the, the, the pipeline has, has gotten pretty bad in general. And on top of that, we have a population, and this is the one you're referring to, the Haredi, where parents basically uh, choose to deprive their children of receiving an education that can help them eventually get into the uh, to the marketplace and survive uh, economically. Now, we in our recent publication, the Shoresh Handbook, 
we showed that the issue in Israel has much less to do with uh, religion than it has to do with politics. We compared, for example, Haredim in Israel to Haredim in America in terms of the share of uh, Haredim with an academic degree. And in America, it's not just a little bit more, it's twice as much. In other words, the education the Haredim receive in America enables them to get into higher education, to get into, in some cases, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, these kinds of places. In Israel, uh, the education that we give most of the Haredi kids is so bad uh, that they basically, we, we're limiting their future. In the case of the men, um, a, a growing share, rather than a, a, smalling sh a uh, smaller share, a growing share of the men uh, as boys did not study anything beyond uh, eighth grade in terms of a formal education. They study many more years of Torah, but uh, the education that they receive uh, is, is basically an eighth grade at best. It's not really eighth grade because they don't study science, they don't study English, and, and their math in most cases is, is very rudimentary. Uh, these are not tools that can prepare these kids for a life in a modern economy. Now, if we were talking about a group the size of the Amish, well, that's one thing. But this is a group that in 1980 uh, represented 4% of the entire population. In four decades, they're going to be 27% of the population. It's by far the fastest growing group in Israel. And we're not doing just them a favor by giving their kids the rights that they have to a, a normal and a good education. We're also depriving our kids and our future because we need doctors and we're going to need physicists and we're going to need engineers. These are not things that you can pick up when you're 25 or 30 or, or whenever, when you have a family at home and you decide to make up on your education. What Yeshati did was to try and move more and more Haredim into the workplace, and that's something that uh, other, other parties as well have tried to do. And actually we see it happening more and more in Israel today. However, if you don't give these kids the tools when they're young, they're not going to be able to cut it afterwards. And uh, other than a few geniuses, uh, the fact that we see many more Haredim today uh, trying to make it, uh, still their, their, their toolbox is extremely limited. Uh, and even then, uh, when, we, when we look at higher education, the, the share of Haredim with an academic degree, prime working age, say 35, 54, that's been relatively constant and very, very low over the past decade. Um, and if you look at the younger Haredim, 20 to 34, it's almost zero. It's very, very low. Uh, even those who go to college uh, have tremendous problems completing and getting a degree. Yeah, so we need to, to, to get involved here, and this is something that most of the politicians uh, won't touch, but uh, it's not a left or right issue. It's an issue of just saving not just the Haredim, it's saving Israel because we need them and they need us and we need to get our act together. So let's let's continue. I think my last couple of questions are going to continue in the, the theme of education. But what about the kids who are, you know, as they say, we Jews have been called people of the book, but it seems that Israeli young people who are in the, let's say, the secular system or the Dati Lumi, the national religious, seem to be less interested in studying core subjects such as math. Your studies put Israeli students at the low end of many categories when compared to OECD countries. Do you think this trend can be reversed? I'm sure it can be reversed. Um, one of the problems is that uh, uh, if you look at uh, specifically at math, this is a study that uh, that uh, we did uh, about a year ago. It's a, as a pilot study. Uh, uh, Professor Yal Kimchi and, and one of my students, Eric uh, Horowitz, did it. 
they looked at math at different levels, at five units, four units, and three units and, and below. Five units in Israel are the highest level of math that you could study at high school. And the, the, the research question was, what happens to these kids uh, a decade and a half afterwards in the marketplace after you, you uh, control for all of the other factors that determine their wages and employment? Like, did they go to college? If so, what did they study in college? What occupation did they have? What were their grades? What were the grades in high school? What were the grades in college? Uh, what kind of socioeconomic background they have? All of the things that determine wages, you can, you can control for uh, statistically. And that allows you to basically knit them out and find out, does it matter if these kids studied math at a higher level in high school or, or, or not? And, and what we found was that... Uh, if you have poor grades at the highest level, you're still going to be making wages that are higher uh, or at least equal to, to those who have the highest grades at, at, at level four. And those with the poor grades in level four are going to be having uh, wages that are relatively the same as those with the highest grades in level three. Now, the problem in Israel, if, if we go back to your question directly, is that over the past uh, half decade, a little bit more than half decade, We've seen the share of kids studying math at the highest levels at five units. The share of kids has, been dropped, has dropped by a third. And the reason is that there's this collective action in Israel uh, by parents, by teachers, by principals to encourage the kids to dumb down, to, take, uh, to be big fish in a small pond, to get high grades at lower levels. And, and what we show is that that's not just bad for the kids, it's terrible for the country. Uh, and Bennett, uh, uh, Naftali Bennett, the education minister, picked up on our study and basically is now trying to put a major emphasis on studying math at higher levels. The high schools are competing with each other to show that their kids have the highest grades. Parents all want their kids to have the highest grades. And so this is a major effort to, con to convince both parents and teachers and principals that the grades, uh, lower grades at higher levels of math are still going to end up with higher wages eventually. Uh, they open up, uh, if you study five units, you can get into better things in universities, which leads to better things afterwards. So there's the indirect effect. There's also the direct effect. Um, so there is now finally an effort to reverse the trend. It's a very problematic trend that the, that the kids are, are, are trying to study at, at lower levels. And we can see it elsewhere in, in other uh, uh, sciences and so on. Um, so I hope that this will be reversed. Of course, to reverse it, another thing that's required is to have teachers who can teach it. And we have less and less teachers that can teach math and science and, 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 and physics and English uh, and some of the most important subjects because these are teachers whose qualifications enable them to have alternatives to being teachers because the, the private market wants them as well. My last question, I want to jump to the place, you know, where, where, where you spend your time, which is in university. Um, another area your research shows is there is a seemingly a brain drain from U Israeli universities. Why, why can't Israel retain and attract top academic talent and researchers? Uh, well, actually, it depends on the field because uh, there, there are three primary reasons that we found uh, for, for Israelis to remain primarily in the States uh, rather than return home to Israel after doing their PhDs or postdocs. Um, one reason is uh, uh, big salary gaps, uh, but this isn't in all fields. This is just in some of the fields because in America, 
the the private sector compensates a lot for certain professions which means that the private the top private universities if they want to have professors in those fields have to pay a lot more money in those fields uh they don't have to pay a lot more money in other fields and so uh the public universities in the, in the US have to and so there won't be a brain drain to the private universities have to compensate more in these fields as well in Israel uh we still have vestiges of a, of a social system where everybody gets paid the same so it doesn't matter what your discipline is everyone gets paid the same uh the only thing that matters is your rank and and seniority but that's it so uh, all fields get the same so in some disciplines the gap between the US and Israel isn't that big in other areas it's huge so in 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 one case i can give you an example of in my field in economics uh the gaps are 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 really huge now we tell our best and brightest students if they want to come back to Israel and and teach in the university we tell them what what i was told and what the generation before me was told you have to go to one of the best american universities get a phd study with a star and then take a number because there are a lot more like you that want to come back but if you're that good you don't have to come back and over the past decade in in economics uh so few have come back that the top two econ departments in Israel at uh, at my university Tel Aviv and the Hebrew University uh we simply do not have enough people in the different fields so uh what happened was that uh, several years ago we just combined our graduate programs so if you want to have an MA today in economics you have to study some of the courses in Mount Scopus and in Jerusalem and some of them in Ramat Aviv in Tel Aviv because neither university we we just do not have enough faculty members That is not the case in in most fields however in most fields what happened was that uh, universities uh did not grow with the population so while the population more than doubled since the 70s um the, the number of faculty members uh increased in in just the research university by only 14% in in some cases in in Hebrew University Tel Aviv University in the Technion we actually have 20% less positions today than we had 40 years ago uh which is a pretty vivid indication of the national priorities of Israel so we basically dried up an entire generation uh we didn't have positions for them um so even if they wanted to return and even if wages weren't the issue uh the one of the most prevalent reasons for people not to return to Israel was not because they didn't want to they couldn't find a job there there just weren't any positions open in the universities that is about to change because uh when Israel created the university and since it hasn't created any research universities since and we have colleges but no research universities um the young professors of once upon a time have been growing old so within the next decade we are going to lose half of uh, the senior faculty in the universities wow uh because they're going to be there's mandatory retirement so all of a sudden now in the next few years everything's just going to open up uh the question is are we going to be able to fill it with people at the levels that we had in the past or are we now going to start just filling from everywhere just just so we have uh, positions and then we're going to be stuck again for another 30 years if we don't start regulating this uh, in a way that you know we 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 bring back good people over time and we also take into account the fact that the country has grown since the 1970s um so that's the second reason a third one a more minor one because it only applies to some of the life sciences and so on is laboratories if we can't give good laboratories and wages don't matter and positions don't matter because these people will not be able to to uh, do the research that will enable them to get promotions and so on 
Um, so those are the three primary reasons for the brain drain. All right. Well, this this has been fascinating. And and my, if my listeners want to learn more about Shoresh, where where should they go to? You can look at our website. It's Shoresh.institute. Does the Shoresh look for any type of public support, or is it privately funded? Yes, we are. Uh, we we need public support. In fact, what one of the things that. Uh, makes this an even greater challenge is we will not take money from the government, any government, and we will not take uh, money from people that may paint us in one, or organizations that may paint us in one way or another. We need people that basically support, will support Shoah, like for universities, because what we do is important not to to uh, promote this or that agenda. So if there's a listener out there or listeners out there that are interested in the future of Israel, well, come along. We're looking for you. Well, I am, and I think my listeners are, and, uh, and I salute your work, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get, be getting some good news in the near future in terms of your reports, and uh, we look forward to reading them. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.pstein.com or look for Philip Stein and Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn. 